The lady uh, had a purse with a brick in it. She was all ready to swing and one thing or another, and I ran up front just to be by my father's side. Nobody's going to swing at him. Nobody. Martin checked into the Waldorf Astoria and checked into a suite above Churchill's and hung an enormous tricolour out the windows of the Waldorf Astoria over Churchill's suite. Sean T. paused and said, OK, I'll accept it. And, and they embraced a little bit. A rather unusual scene, I suppose, in those days to see two males embracing. When he could see that this family needed some help, financial or whatever, he would just tell Martin about it and it would be taken care of. You know, without any big brouhaha, just was taken care of. They didn't feel too good about him, that if if ever they left hands on him or if ever they caught up with him afterwards, I believe they were going to kill him. This is the life story of a man called Martin Lavin. I'm outside the Gresham Hotel in Dublin because in the 50s and 60s, this was one of his favourite spots. He'd come here for his evening meal and just before sitting down, he'd phone his wife back home and tell her, take the dinner out of the oven, Elizabeth, I won't be home. What's amusing about this is that home for Martin Lavin was actually five and a half thousand miles away in Michigan in the United States. Usually he decided to fly to Ireland on the spur of the moment. He'd leave for work very early in the morning, check in with the office, and then head for Detroit Airport and a plane to Ireland. I've also chosen the Gresham because it's where he and I spent many a pleasant hour in the 60s. We were friends, and although I thought I knew him well, it's only since researching for this documentary I've discovered how little I knew about the man. He was enigmatic, complicated, flamboyant, absorbing, very, very generous, and quite, quite ruthless. Martin was born in Kilshimaa County, Mayo, in 1902 to Jack and Honora. His father had worked in America in St. Louis as a hod carrier and in a steel mill. He came home with enough money to build the family a larger house in the town. It was an unhappy return. He drank heavily and didn't get along with Honora. For her part, she's remembered as being quite strict and domineering. Oh, his reputation as a child was he was bold. He was very bold. Francis Foley was Martin's first cousin. She remembers him as a child. I remember we had a shed where we had turf and there was galvanised on it. And he'd never passed without firing in stones and tapping them off the galvanised. But uh, he was always wanting notice. He was what you'd call bullying now, if you like to put it that way. Despite his rowdiness, Martin did well in school, well enough to get a job at 16 in the British Civil Service in London. Two years later, he transferred to the civil service in Dublin, where he joined the 3rd Dublin Brigade of the IRA. In 1921, Martin Lavin's colleagues in the civil service suspected his Republican leanings, and he was fired. He returned to the Kilshima area, where he joined a local IRA unit. The British were actively harassing the population, including on one occasion surrounding the church in Kilshima 
and terrorising those inside at Mass. As well as carrying out attacks on black and tans and auxiliaries, Martin and his IRA comrades kept the local population in line. Johnny Sneed describes how they treated women who were associated with British soldiers. They just cut their hair. <laughs> you know, if there was anybody associating with the English soldiers, they just trimmed the hair off them. Had them tied outside the chapel gate on Sunday morning. They'd have a sign around the neck and the breast, you know. When I was going in, it, you know, some, there'd be always some girls would cohabit with them. So they'd cure them. <laughs> they'd cure them. Kilshima school teacher Hugh McTighe remembers a story about Martin at the time. A local egg merchant was blacked by Sinn Féin because he sold eggs to Britain. Another local egg merchant was acceptable to the Republicans, but unfortunately for the farmers, he paid far less for their eggs than the merchant who was blacked. This man came in with a very large consignment of eggs, and he needed the money, and he needed all he got because he wanted to buy shoes for his children. So he came in from the Cahar direction, from the Kilkelly direction, and he sold the eggs to the man that hadn't the blessing of the Sinn Féin movement at the time. And, of course, it was immediately reported. So Martin went out onto the Kilkelly Road to the townland of Galboy and waited for him to set off home. And when he arrived out just outside the town, Martin relayed him and took the shoes that he had bought for his children from him and brought them to Chapel Street. And they tried the shoes on the youngsters, all the youngsters that they could lay their hands on around Chapel Street, and they wouldn't fit anybody that was available for shoes or that they were willing to give them to. 1922 brought the prospect of civil war. Martin joined the anti-treaty side, known by their enemies as the Irregulars, or locally as Bolshies. Among his former comrades who joined the Free State Army were his neighbours in Kilshimath, the Rouen brothers. The Rouens became a focus for Martin's hatred. Early in June, he appeared outside Mass in Kilshimath holding a revolver. He was about to shoot the Rouens as they came out of the church. The crowd intervened and he was disarmed and sent on his way. Martin's gun was given to a neutral observer, but it found its way back into his hands and he was to use it to deadly effect later in the month. On June 28, 1922, the civil war broke out with an attack on the four courts in Dublin by the National Army. On the next day, Thursday the 29th, it came to Kilshimah. The last Thursday of every month was fair day in the town. Martin and his IRA colleagues came into the town between 9 and 10 in the evening. The cattle were all in pens at the railway station, ready to be shipped out, and the pubs were full. In Rouen's shop and pub, the Rouen brothers were helping out with the busy fair day crowd. Martin and his group headed straight for them. The details of what happened next are in dispute. My father told me how this coming of the IRA went to Rouen's in Kalshima to disarm the RAC. 
Jerry Morden is the nephew of Willie Morden, one of the IRA men who came into the town. And he tells the story, the purpose of the raid was to deal with remnants of the RIC. They had them out of the barracks and they were still coming to Kalshima and they were still hanging around Kalshima, waiting to get paid. And those people that were paying them, the meeting place was Ruans in Kalshima. And those blokes were getting tired of them hanging around the town, so they decided to shift them, run them out of the town. And they went to Ruans and when they got inside in the building... Somebody thought that one of the Rowans had a gun under the table. Witnesses in the bar that night said that one of the raiders pointed a gun at Jimmy Rowan. He grabbed it, pushed it upwards, caught the IRA man around the neck, the gun went off and a shot went through the ceiling. Another IRA man then shot Jimmy through the back. Then Tommy was pulled from the shop and thrown onto the footpath outside. Almost immediately, Tommy was shot as he lay on the footpath. He called for a priest, shouting, Martin Lavin! has shot me. Then another shot was fired and this hit Willie Morden, the irregular. Willie Morden staggered across the road and he dropped the other side of the road and the blood, the reckon, came out of him like it was coming out of a spraying can. And he fell across the road outside the Hibernian bank and his blood ran down the road and into the drain. So apparently then Welshers came out and they picked Willie up and they brought him into their sitting room. This laughing fella shot Rowan and he shot Willie. Martin Lavin shouted to the crowd, keep back, I'll shoot, and ran down the street and out of the town. Willie Morden died almost immediately. Tommy Rowan died five days later in Castlebar Hospital. His brother Jimmy, who had been shot in the back, survived the attack. Martin Lavin spent that night under a bridge just outside the town, and made his way to a series of safe houses before going to Belfast. Sometime later, he had his red hair dyed black and was passing through the city unrecognised, that is, until Joe Mulhern's mother saw him. She was a Kelchima woman studying in the city. She was down the street or something, and she saw this man and she recognised him. Now, Martin had a head of red hair, but this man's hair was dyed black and she recognised Martin, but she didn't pretend to know him. And she never got a chance to ask him about it in later years, but I did. And he was appreciative of the fact that my mother didn't say anything. Martin didn't just change his hair colour, but uh, also his identity. He said his name was Michael Mulderick. Mulderick was a neighbour from Kilchima who had relatives in Antrim. Martin sought them out and told them he was their cousin from Mayo who had come visiting. They didn't know their cousin to see, so they believed him and took him in. The husband was a policeman, and he asked the policeman would he bring him down to the docks. He wanted to go to Liverpool. The policeman said, well, I will, but will it wait till I change out of my uniform? Oh, no, no, no. You keep your uniform on. <laughs> We next hear of Martin in the United States in early 1923. A report in the Cleveland Plain Dealer says he's in hospital in the city recovering from a bayonet wound. He said he received it fighting in Ireland. The paper reports that while in hospital he's visited by the widow of Terence McSweeney, the Lord Mayor of Cork who died in hunger strike. Also while there, his immigration to the United States is being challenged by the authorities. He pleads political asylum and he's allowed stay in America. Having left hospital 
He gets a job delivering groceries. He also worked for an Irish Republican pressure group and a credit bureau while studying law. Meanwhile, back in Ireland in 1924, the trial of Martin's IRA colleagues takes place. They're charged with murdering Tommy Ruan and Willie Morden. The witnesses identify Martin Lavin as the killer, and his comrades are acquitted of murder. It appears Martin was not even tried in absentia. But Martin does appear in court in America. All rise, the 53rd District Court is now in session. He's become a lawyer. Although he's not an American citizen, he applies to the bar saying he's from a town in Kansas, a town where the courthouse burned down, destroying all the population's birth certificates. The year was 1931. He had set up his practice in the town of Brighton, Michigan, which he discovered had no lawyer. Brighton had a population of 1,000, small and rural, much like Kilshima. And like Kilshima, it had a railway line. But unlike Kilshima, it had a location which would bring it great prosperity. It was situated in Livingston County between the growing city of Detroit and the state capital of Lansing. He had a personality that was so strong that people were afraid not to agree with him in a lot of cases. Local historian Dwayne Zemper remembers how Martin made an impact as soon as he arrived. He would put you on a spot and look you right in the eye and say, don't you think that's right, you know? And you'd nod your head <laughs> and agree with him. He had, like they say, a golden voice and piercing eyes and red hair. And when he said something, everybody listened. <laughs> you didn't have much choice. <laughs> 1931, it was the height of the Depression, so it looked as if Martin had made the wrong decision and ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. But not so. Martin became a Democrat, even though Livingston County was predominantly Republican. A Democrat was in the White House, and Martin was appointed attorney for the receiver of a local bank that was in trouble. In sorting out the bank's affairs, Martin gave priority to the small depositors and thus antagonized the local establishment. In America, where many positions like judges and prosecutors are voted on by the electorate, your politics are important. Court is now in session. The Honorable Michael K. Haggerty presiding. But it was in court that Martin Lavin developed his reputation as a lawyer. It was said he succeeded not because of his knowledge of the law... He would always try to get somebody on the jury whom he knew would never vote for conviction of anybody for anything. Bud Irwin was Martin's main rival for many years. Bud was the local prosecutor, and Martin was the most popular defense attorney in the county. Irwin regularly came up against his courtroom tricks. He just got acquittal after acquittal. Then I found out that we were picking juries in those days off the street. I found out that we were having a fellow who was the janitor of the courthouse on most of the juries. He's available all the time. And I found out that that guy would never vote for conviction for anybody because it was against his religion. And then that taught me a lesson. So he didn't sit on any more juries. I excused him, and I accused Martin of using that guy to win a lot of cases, and he just laughed about it. Lawyer John Brennan remembers one of Martin's antics in court. I remember he had a trial over in Flint, and it was a new judge. 
And uh, Martin happened to know another judge on that bench who said, hey, Martin, give this new judge a little few lessons. So one of the things Martin would do, he'd always mispronounce the man's name. And it got under this judge's skin. And he'd keep saying, no, Mr. Lavin, it's not Callahan, it's O'Callahan. And then a little while later, Martin would again refer to him as judge, and he'd mispronounce the name again. And he got the judge so upset that the judge had to declare a mistrial. And ultimately, Martin was able to work a deal with the prosecutor because the prosecutor got tired of trying the cases. He would go to the limit. I remember a rape case. He came in defending a fellow for rape. And he was obviously guilty. I remember Martin cross-examining the lady that was the rapee. Finally got her to admit that her father had been involved in some crime. During the recess, he apparently got a hold of her in the hallway and said, if you don't withdraw your complaint against this man, I'm going to bring out the crime that your father committed. And he had gotten acquittal. That's how far he would go. Martin mixed regularly with the local Irish community, and it was through this circle he met and married Elizabeth Galbraith. She was a nurse in the TB sanatorium in nearby Howell, and she was, uh, in some ways, his opposite. She came from County Antrim and was a Presbyterian, although she later converted to Catholicism. Oh, a dear lady. She was just a sweetheart. Barbara McCrary remembers Elizabeth fondly. Very much a lady, but also a very strong person in her own way. Spent a lot of time by herself because her husband was always very busy. Sense of humor, she was funnier than I'll get out. One story she told me one time was Judge Carlin and Martin were very, very close friends. So when the judge was down here in court, he'd spend a night or two nights, depending on what his trial dates were, and... Martin would never call her and say, I'm bringing someone home for dinner. So she said, I was always surprised. So one night she said he walked in with Judge Carlin and she said, I thought, aha, I'm going to take care of this. So she said, I looked up the largest platter I could find and I fixed a little tiny bird and I put it in the middle of the table and said, okay, this is your dinner. (laughs) She said, but it never worked because he never changed. He just would bring people in for dinner all the time. No, she was a lovely, lovely lady. Sweet, sweet. Martin and Elizabeth had three children, a girl, Mary Elizabeth, and two boys, Brian and Sean. We always called our parents mother dear and father dear. It's peculiar. Always did. Brian remembers their home life as being idyllic. I can recall as a youngster how it was that uh, he'd come home. He'd be walking up the sidewalk. We would run and give him a great big hug, jumping up. It was a race to see who could take off his shoes when he came home. And he'd have his feet up on the footstool, and we'd sit and talk before the dinner was served, and it was a wonderful family. Then came 1944, one of Martin's darkest years. My sister, who had been involved in an accident in 1942, where she was hit by a car by a drunken local and flew 80 feet in the air and 180 feet down the road, became sick two years thereafter on February the 14th of 1944. She uh, went to the hospital in the morning, and she passed away that night of pneumo meningitis. I remember the wailing when they came home from the hospital, and the wails at the wailing wall wouldn't have been any more intense. 
Although he was only five, Martin's son, Sean, well remembers the funeral of his 10-year-old sister. Mary Elizabeth was laid out in my mother and father's bedroom, in my father and mother's bed, and all the flowers. You couldn't see a wall. I mean, it was flowers from every inch of the, in the living room and down our hallway. I climbed up in the bed. I remember that to this day. I tried to give her a Valentine cookie, but uh, she wouldn't take it, and that's when Mulliger... You know, but I didn't realize that she was passed away. I had no idea. And Martin's friends, Judge Michael Hegarty and lawyer John Brennan, say the pain of Mary Elizabeth's death never left Martin and Elizabeth. Many times uh, you'd be over there visiting with them, and all of a sudden they start talking about Mary Elizabeth. And they would then, there'd be no one else present, but the two of them, and as they'd be talking about Mary Elizabeth, her bedroom upstairs they left untouched. It was a huge, sweet, big bedroom, and her closet had every one of her dresses were hung up just as the day that she died. Everything was untouched, although clean. Uh, apparently, Mrs. Lavin would go up as though she were going to come back. Uh, very strange. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this would be, what, 20, 30, 30 years afterwards. Yeah. 1944 was the year in which one of Martin's Civil War enemies died in Kilshima. Jim Ruan, who had been injured on that night in June 1922, died when the shop in which the shootings took place went up in flames. In all, eight people were killed in that fire. After the war, Martin came to Ireland. In Dublin, he stayed at the Gresham Hotel. It was to be his home away from home for many years to come. And one of his favourite waiters was Tommy Doyle. I was only a comedy waiter at that time. And I got a circle of friendship with him. He started talking to me and he was uh, always very, very courteous and very nice with me. We always had a good bit of crack with Martin. He had a dry sense of humour, but a very, very genuine man. In the Gresham, Martin entertained lavishly. Every October, for example, he threw a dinner for his old comrades in the IRA in Room 104. Room 104 had just been refurbished, recarpeted, so the whole lot was beautiful. And Martin and his ballets were up there having a dinner and then a sing-song and a few drinks. And we had a young assistant manager just starting and out to impress. And he knocked on the door 104 and told them to cut down on the singing and the noise and to be careful of the rumours had just been refurbished. And the three of them turned around. I remember it well, they said, the three fellas standing at the door and they turned around and they said, listen, Sonny, we burnt this effing place down in 22 and if you don't F off, we'll burn it down around you. <laughs> well, that's gospel. He also entertained family, like his first cousin John Kelly, whose son Tom remembers their meetings well. My father used to tell a story about Martin sitting there and they'd be in the lobby and this little bellhop would go by. You remember the bellhops in those days with the little pillbox caps on them? And this bellhop would go by and he'd be saying, Mr. Lovin. And my father would watch this kid, for 13 or 14, go by. And Martin would put up his hand and say, Youngster, do you know who I am? No, sir. I am Martin Lovin. And here is something to remember me by and he would hand them over a ten-shilling note, which was an enormous amount of money, and get the message from the bellboy. And half an hour later, the kid would come by again, 
Mr. Lovin. And the whole thing would be repeated. The whole scenario, including the ten shilling note. And my father used to come home and say, well, Lavin may be the smartest lawyer in Brighton, Michigan, or wherever the hell he is, but the bellhop in the Gresham Hotel is a hell of a sight smarter than him. And Martin's nephew, John, was a boarder in Black Rock College in those days. When he'd come to Dublin, it was a great day for me because I'd get out into the Gresham, get a lot of food into me that I was (laughs) missing. I think he was kind of almost in court, like when he'd be at the top of the table and there'd be usually be eight or ten people around and he'd have a conversation going that would work around to kind of setting somebody up for a bit of a laugh you know something that most male people do anyway i think it's a bit of a sport isn't it and even though he was a lawyer martin defied the law when it suited him at one stage the city of brighton put parking meters outside his office he promptly pulled them out of the wet cement and threw them in the gutter. For many years, Martin was the boss of the local Democratic Party, a job which gave him significant political influence. But in 1964, his leadership of the party came under attack, literally with fisticuffs. At an infamous convention, a fight broke out over voting procedures, and one delegate tried to hang another smaller man from a coat hook. All hell broke loose. Uh, They started swinging and this and that. Martin's son, Sean, remembers the day well. A lady uh, had a purse with a brick in it. She was all ready to swing and one thing or another, and I ran up front just to be by my father's side. Nobody's going to swing at him. Nobody. And it just, it was a real Donnybrook. The old biddy who had the brick in her purse and came looking for trouble... She got taken care of to the extent that she was relieved of her purse until the festivities were over, correct? Yeah, I didn't hit her. Thirty-some years later, I wish I would have. And Sean was involved in fights of his own, which landed him in jail. He feels he was overprotected and spoiled by his parents following the death of his sister. As a result, he developed a wild streak. Despite his waning political power in the Democratic Party, Martin had and continued to make huge sums of money as a lawyer. For example, the government were building 52 miles of expressway through Michigan and placing compulsory purchase orders on land in Livingston County. Martin could get the best deal for local landowners and took a percentage for himself. Although, curiously, there's a bend in the expressway just outside Brighton, and his friends say the engineers put it there to avoid crossing land Martin himself owned. He was making a lot of money, but he spent it freely. He had a large boat, the County Mayo, on Lake Michigan. I remember he liked to moor it in the Detroit Yacht Club alongside the Ford family yacht. He would put a record player on deck and play songs from Mayo for the gentry of Detroit at full volume. Of course, there would be a tricolor on the stern. On one occasion, he brought his tricolor with him to New York, as Tom Kelly remembers. Churchill went to New York at one stage, and he stayed in the Waldorf Astoria. And we were told that Martin found out about this and checked into the Waldorf Astoria and checked into a suite above Churchill's. 
and hung an enormous tricolour out the windows of the Waldorf Astoria over Churchill's suite. And, you know, it all went to enhance the reputation of sort of Jack the Lad. Martin Lavin also spent his wealth freely in Brighton, freely and sometimes inconspicuously. Mary Ann Baer is a local historian, and while researching Martin's life, she encountered a breadman who told her a remarkable story. He delivered uh, bread, so he got into a lot of people's homes and so on, and he said that when he could see that this family needed some help, financial or whatever, he would just tell Martin about it and it would be taken care of. You know, without any big brouhaha, just was taken care of. No. That was, <laughs> that was an, uh, another side that I hadn't heard before. He was a Robin Hood figure, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, or so it seemed, until a man called Jim Turner came into the area. Jim Turner's wife was heiress to a fortune from the Hush Puppy Shoe Company, and he borrowed against the money to bring out a glossy magazine called Today. The local Detroit newspapers were on strike at the time, which gave the magazine greater prominence on the newsstands. But what really sold it were sensational revelations Turner had to make about the lawyers of Livingston County in general, and Martin Lavin in particular. His main theme as he started up was a challenge to some of the activities of Lavin dealing with the estates of aged widows. Roger Lane, journalist. There was a lot of doubt in some minds about the quality of the work and even the uh, ethical standards that Lavin was following. One of Turner's allegations against Martin Lavin related to a woman named Orpha Bow. She was an elderly woman who inherited property from her brother in California, and she approached Martin to get her money out of the property. According to Jim Turner, he had her sign a blank deed which she never saw again. The magazine claimed that Martin sold the property to his secretary, then collected rent on it for three years, then sold it again to a California couple for $20,000. Jim Turner went on to claim that Mrs. Bow, who was on welfare, tried for three years to get her money from Martin but failed. Eventually, he gave her $3,000. Then and now, the lawyers of Livingston County portrayed Jim Turner as vindictive and inaccurate, not understanding the complexities of probate work. Where human character is on trial, people are always ready to believe the worst, especially when the character on trial is an attorney. Bill McCreary, who worked in Martin's office. I really don't think that the improprieties alleged were factual. I just was never convinced of that, and I was probably in a much better position to observe it. Well, there was some truth in it. In any bar, you'll have some things that don't turn up right. Joe Cox, a lawyer from nearby Fowlerville. Right after that, we had quite a few young lawyers come out here who were possibly recruited. And there, there was some uh, definitely monetary damage to some guy like me. I was picked on some, too. The newspaper wrote me up as longtime friend of Martin Lavin's. <laughs> and I, I used to call him up and say, how are you, longtime friend? <laughs> the legal community were suffering, and they went on the offensive. Some approached advertisers in Turner's magazine and tried to get them to withdraw their support. A local judge, Michael Carland, a friend of Martin's, accused Jim Turner of contempt of court after he'd written that Martin Lavin had corrupted the entire judiciary of Livingston County. Turner was found guilty, fined $150, and sentenced to 15 days in jail. Two years later, the decision was overturned. How he handled the, uh, one of these cases 
Roger Lane, who wrote a thesis on the affair, said that while Turner was sensational and had no journalistic training, his research was thorough. You know, he went out and he got copies of some cancelled checks and all that kind of stuff. He did a good news job to support what he was putting in the paper. This was not something he sat there and invented. He was a capable newspaper guy, even though his training was very limited. But Turner had started the ball rolling. Stories appeared in the papers about the workings of the courts in Livingston County, which suggested cronyism. The practices of the probate court were called into question, and Martin's son, Brian, was suspended from practice for allegedly mishandling funds while he was justice of the peace. He was later reinstated and completely exonerated. A lot of the silk-stockinged, sophisticated thieves who practiced law in the Blue Ribbon firms ran scared and were looking for a fall guy. He's referring to the State Bar of Michigan, which set up a panel to investigate Martin Lavin and several other lawyers. It was to be Martin's hardest fight yet. Jim Turner, the magazine publisher, decided to run for governor of Michigan and used his allegations against the legal profession in his campaign. The legal profession fought back. Martin's friend John Brennan used a false name and court note paper to find out about Jim Turner's past, unsavory details of which were passed on to the media. Jim Turner's campaign was scuppered. Brennan was later censured for his behavior. Meanwhile, Martin continued to visit Ireland, and it was during one of those visits he decided to meet with one of the surviving Rouans. Senator Sean T., whose brother Tommy he had killed in 1922. The meeting was arranged for Johnny Walsh's in Kilchima. Sean T. was a nightly visitor, and Pat, Johnny's son, was in the room when Martin and Sean T. came face to face. And they looked at each other, and for a short time, maybe five or ten seconds, you could see it all being relived the history of what happened, the emotion, fear even, uh, regret. It all happened and it passed between them more in a glance than anything that was said. There was a, a period of silence, which again was, it seemed to be a long time, and it was probably only a few seconds, as people just waited and wondered what's, what is going to happen here. So eventually, Marching said, that he was sorry, or some words to that effect. That was the the sentiment he was expressing, that he was very sorry for what had happened and that he hoped that he would be forgiven That uh, because he was interested in a reconciliation. Uh, Sean T. paused and um, thought about it and said, OK, I'll accept it. And they shook hands and they embraced a little bit a rather unusual scene, I suppose, in those days to see two males embracing. Uh, that was it, really, but the message was given and received. The reconciliation was, was brought about. However, Martin Lavin never approached the family of Willie Morton, his second victim that night in 22. Willie's nephew, Jerry, remembers the family had no time for Martin. I could never see my father forgiven Lavin for what he'd done, not till the day he died. He's dead since 1971. They didn't feel too good about him, that if, if ever they left hands on him or if ever they caught up with him afterwards, I believe they were going to kill him. Mm-hmm. 
Martin's final visits to Ireland were not as happy as in earlier years. He no longer held his annual dinner for IRA comrades in the Gresham. It became too painful to see fewer and fewer still alive every year. However, he still had it in mind to set up a home in Ireland. Driving up the Dublin hills to step aside, where Martin built a bungalow. He built this bungalow to entice Elizabeth over to spend his closing days in Dublin. Didn't tell her anything. This was to be a surprise. Well, this is the place. There's the bungalow there. And uh, it had every modern amenity. Waste disposal, every American gadget that you can think of. It even had a replica of the fireplace that they had in Michigan. Martin went to great trouble to make it absolutely perfect for Elizabeth. But she looked over the place, didn't say anything. But in the final analysis, no, she wouldn't come here. That was it. Martin was bitterly disappointed, and it was indeed a great blow to him. Johnny Kelly from Kilshima remembers the last time he saw Martin. He drove him from Kilshima to Shannon Airport. He seemed full of remorse, very quiet in the car on the way up. I think he felt it was his last visit to Ireland. I took him to the airport. As I was driving away, I was watching Martin standing on his own and he watched me going down the road and he waved and he looked very, very downy. The most sorrowful person, as far as I remember, ever taken to Shannon. They were leaving for America. In Michigan, Martin Lavin was still news because he had arrived in America using an alias. His citizenship was questioned. It was also claimed his legal qualifications were bogus and the Michigan State Bar Association were still pressuring him for answers to their questions about his legal practice. He claimed he was too sick to testify. They didn't believe him. Eventually, an independent medical examination showed he was right. They struck a deal with him and he agreed to surrender his license in return for the adjournment of the disbarment proceedings. But there was more to come. The Internal Revenue Service said he owed $100,000 in unpaid taxes. He pleaded no contest and paid the taxes and a fine. In his final years, Martin had beside his chair a tape recorder playing Dublin street sounds, which he had recorded during one of his visits. He also kept a copy of the Dublin telephone directory nearby. When he met his maker, he was at peace with himself. He was at peace with his God. He was at peace with his family. And he was at peace with his friends. Martin Lavin was a born rebel. It was his rebel nature that turned him against his former leader, Michael Collins. He could not embrace compromise and could not appreciate Collins' vision. Like all diehard rebels, he was indispensable to revolution, only to become an impediment to the resolution of conflict which requires compromise. Even his marriage to Elizabeth Galbraith, an Antrim Scots Presbyterian loyalist, could be seen as a defiance of convention. Love fired by the attraction of opposites. It didn't entice him, however, to accept the politics of her people. He even appropriately died before the midnight hour on July 11, 1976, as if he could not face another twelfth.